the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Greg Glass. He is the author of Noble Journey, A Quest for a Lasting Legacy. We're focusing once again on men and the challenge they face in the 21st century as they're being characterized in um, much of entertainment media as insignificant and unnecessary. We'll talk with Craig Glass about that and much more. We're also going to talk with Anna Quintana. She's a Anna Quintana. I got the look from Clark. She's a senior policy analyst on Latin America and the Western Hemisphere at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the caravan that has been making its way toward our southern border. What does it mean and how uh, unique is this movement? Um, We're going to talk about the president's response and the relationship the United States and the government of Mexico, particularly as it relates to our southern border. So she'll be joining us later in the five o'clock hour. Well, yesterday we began the, the program with what was then a breaking news story. We knew that a young woman had apparently shot uh, and, and uh, seriously injured some members of the YouTube staff in uh, in California. Uh, We were told at the time that it was believed that she was targeting a male friend, a former boyfriend, perhaps. Well, that has uh, since changed. And that's a part of the problem with a developing story as you're trying to report on what's being reported. We now know that the uh, shooter was a 38 year old woman. And that in and of itself, the fact that she was a woman was unusual. Um, She was angry, apparently, at YouTube. She opened fire using a handgun at the video sharing website headquarters in San Bruno, California. This was about uh, 12, 15, 12, 20 um, Pacific time yesterday. Police say that she, uh, Nassim Agdam, wounded three people before fatally shooting herself. Well, according to her website and various social media posts, she believed that YouTube was discriminating against her videos, causing her to lose money and views. Police revealed her identity last night. She was born in Iran. She lived in South Carolina, uh, rather Southern California, which is quite different from South Carolina. She was active on YouTube. She often ranted about the company and videos on her channel, on Instagram, and on her own website. It's not known if this was a potential motive in the shooting, but police um, have not addressed that uh, idea. It seems fairly clear, particularly since her father has been interviewed since uh, the event took place. She identifies as Persian. She often posted videos and other blog-like messages in English, Turkish, and Farsi, the original language of Iran. She had various online aliases. I won't mention all of them, but original reports listed her as being 39. Public records indicate she was 38, but would have turned 39 on the 5th of April, two days after the shooting. The victims of the shooting, who remain hospitalized, have uh, not yet been identified 
inside, but police initially said the male victim was targeted. And law enforcement sources told multiple news outlets yesterday that the incident was a domestic violence situation with the woman targeting her boyfriend. Well, that now does not appear to have been the case. The San Bruno Police Department is investigating a motive for the shooting. At this time, there is no evidence that the shooter knew the victims of this uh, shooting or that individuals were specifically targeted, police said in a press release. And anyone with information, of course, is encouraged to pass that information along. Some of what we know, uh, the shooter apparently ranted that YouTube was filtering her videos to reduce views, to suppress her opinions, and discourage her from making videos saying there's no free speech in the real world. They don't believe that uh, the 38-year-old had uh, any direct connection to YouTube, but uh, she did have a YouTube channel. She often posted videos that included rants against the company. Uh, her female, she is uh, identified as a female vegan bodybuilder, also an animal rights activist. She promoted healthy and humane living. She produced and launched the first Persian TV commercial and music video, Do You Dare, regarding animal rights and veganism through international Iranian satellite television in 2010. Read the About section on her YouTube channel. Uh, her channel had been uh, deleted. She had more than 5,000 subscribers, and her videos had been viewed more than 1 million times. Times the video below uh, at the YouTube site uh, was an example. I'm being discriminated and filtered on YouTube, and I'm not the only one. She ranted. The videos of uh, singers like Nicki Minaj, uh, Miley Cyrus, and others um, uh, have sexual things so inappropriate for children to watch. They don't get age restricted, but my videos get age restricted. In another video, she talked about how to be successful on YouTube, mocking the company, and it went on from there. We now know that her father said she went missing for several days and that she hated YouTube. Uh, her father, Ismail Agdam uh, spoke uh, to the Mercury News via television after the Tuesday shooting. He told the outlet that he phoned police um, after her daughter, his daughter rather, had been missing for two days. And on Tuesday, around 2 a.m. Pacific time, Mountain View uh, police located her. She had been sleeping in her car and added that she um, uh, was okay. The father told police that his daughter, whose full name Uh, He uh, gave them at the time may have been going to YouTube because she hated the company. He explained to the newspaper that his daughter was upset because YouTube had stopped paying her for her posts. So he had warned that she may, in fact, have been a danger. Hindsight 2020, it's uh, putting those pieces together at the time a bit more challenging. Uh, We also know that she posted online in three languages, English, Farsi, and the official language of Iran and Turkey, while she identified as being part of the Baha'i faith. Uh, on her posts as well. And we know that she was a vegan bodybuilder and animal rights activist. She took part in PETA-led protests, and police initially thought that the um, injured male was the intended target, uh, but don't believe that uh, terrorism was involved, although I suppose walking into a an office and opening fire is an act of terrorism that may not be related to a particular religious worldview. It is an act of terror in and of itself. Uh, nonetheless, uh, some things we know about the shooter. We also know that she visited a local gun range before heading to the video sharing company's headquarters in California to carry out the rampage that wounded three people. Uh, again, uh, her birthday would have been tomorrow. She was 39 at the time of the incident, and we don't have any more information at this point of the individuals who were her target. 
As I mentioned uh, later in the program, we're going to talk with Craig Glass, and we're once again going to take a look at legacy. And as it relates particularly for men in an age when masculinity is frowned upon and many men feel the need to be apologetic about, well, who and what they are made in the image of God as male. So Craig Glass will join us uh, to talk about that. Anna Quintana will also join us. Anna Quintana. Uh, She's a senior policy analyst, as you've been uh, uh, possibly watching uh, the back and forth regarding the uh, caravan of some 1,200 people headed toward the United States southern border with an intent to cross that border. Well, what do we know about this uh, this group? Is this an unusual event at this time of year? Who's organizing it? Uh, why was attention uh, drawn to it at, at uh, this point? We're going to try to put that into perspective. We do have some um, recent developments that indicate that perhaps the uh, the caravan has been breaking up and may not, in fact, Uh, make an effort to cross the U.S. border, but we'll talk more about that later. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, 20 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. On some of the lead stories today, the president said the National Guard may secure the U.S.-Mexico border until a wall can be built. The president's considering a plan involving substantial mobilization of the Guard. A White House uh, spokesman said earlier today, and that that order is, in fact, being carried out. He made his remarks uh, Tuesday during a meeting with Baltic leaders where he said he had discussed the matter with Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. Until we can have a wall and proper security, we're going to be guarding our border with the military, he said. That's a big step. We really have uh, haven't done that before. Well, we actually have, or certainly not very much uh, before. Uh, the president move. Uh, the president's move, rather, appears to be at least partly motivated by the caravan of some 1,200 Central American migrants heading toward the United States border. Uh, new information on that we'll talk about uh, a bit later, but um, it, it is in response to that and has uh, highlighted uh, what the president says is a very porous border that must be addressed. Well, special counsel Robert Mueller told President Trump's attorney last month, we are told, that he does not consider Trump to be a criminal target in his investigation of Russian actions during the 2016 campaign. The Washington Post reported last night, the paper citing three people familiar with the discussions reported that Mueller made the comments while negotiating with Trump's attorney about a potential interview with the president, citing two people with knowledge of the conversations. The Post also reported that Mueller reiterated uh, his need to interview Trump. Trump to determine whether the president intended to halt the Russian investigation while in office. According to the Post, Trump has privately expressed relief at Mueller's description of his legal status. However, some advisors, they've warned that the special counsel may be baiting the president into letting his guard down for any interview. We'll continue to follow that story. And again, the woman suspected of shooting three people at YouTube headquarters in San Bruno, California, before killing herself, was furious at the company because it had stopped paying her for videos she posted, her father said late Tuesday. And her brother is now blaming law enforcement for failing to take his uh, warning seriously, having told them that his uh, sister was missing and that he suspected she was headed to YouTube to shoot up the place uh, out of that anger. 
Well, the Trump administration said on Tuesday that it plans to slap 25 percent tariffs on approximately 1,300 products from China in response to Beijing's alleged theft of U.S. intellectual property. According to U.S. Trade Representative's office, the mainly non-consumer products accounts for approximately $50 billion in annual imports. The items include industrial chemicals, motorcycles, medical devices. However, the proposed tariffs would not take effect before a public comment period ends on the 11th of May. The announcement comes 11 days after the president levied protective tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum in response to what the administration has described as unfair trade practices. In response, China raised import duties on American pork, fruit, aluminum, and other products. China's government said earlier its imports of those goods last year totaled $3 billion. Well, authorities investigating the California cliff plunge that is believed to have killed two adults and their six adoptive children have left open the possibility that three of the children may not have been in the vehicle. One can only hope. Lieutenant Shannon Barney of the Mendocino uh, County Sheriff's Office told the New York Daily News that first responders located the bodies of Jennifer and Sarah Hart near the crash site, along with the bodies of three others, Marcus, 19, Jeremiah, 14, and Abigail, also 14. However, authorities have been reportedly unable to locate three others, Hannah, 16, Devante, 15, and Sierra, 12. Right now, we have to leave open the possibility they could be in Washington or Oregon or elsewhere in California. Barney told the paper, there is always that possibility and we have to leave it open. So one, again, can only hope and pray that that may, in fact, be the case. We also have learned that it's highly likely that, in fact, the, um, uh, the effort to uh, drive the car over the, the cliff was, in fact, deliberate. A special counsel, Robert Mueller's team, has taken the unusual step of questioning Russian oligarchs who've traveled into the United States, stopping at least one searching his electronic devices when his private jet landed in New York. Uh, according to multiple sources familiar with that inquiry and reported by CNN, a second r- uh, Russian oligarch was uh, stopped during a recent trip to the United States, although it's not clear if he was searched, according to a person briefed on that matter. Mueller's team has also made it an informal, voluntary document and interview request to a third Russian oligarch who's not traveled to the United States recently. Well, the situations have one thing in common. Investigators are asking whether wealthy Russians illegally funneled cash donations directly or indirectly directly into Donald Trump's presidential campaign and inauguration. Investigators' uh, interest in Russian oligarchs has not been previously reported, and it reveals that Mueller's team has intensified its focus into the potential flow of money from Russia into the U.S. election as part of its wide-ranging investigation into whether the Trump team colluded with Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Well, the approach to Russian oligarchs in recent weeks may reflect that Mueller's team has already obtained records or documents that it has legal jurisdiction over and can get easily, one source said, and now it's a wish list to see what other information they can obtain from Russia's, uh, Russians entering the United States or through their voluntary cooperation. Foreign nationals are prohibited under campaign finance laws from donating to U.S. political campaigns, although we've seen examples of that very thing in previous uh, presidential campaigns and elections. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with um, Mr. Glass, and he 
is the founder uh, and president of Peregrine Ministries with a mission to guide and inspire men on their life journey. He served as vice president of ministries at International Teams, pastor at, uh, to men at Willow Creek Community Church and national director of field ministries and International Students Incorporated. He's also the author of Passage to Manhood. It's a field guide. And he blogs about faith and manhood at peregrineministries.org. We're going to talk with him about his latest book, which is simply titled Noble Journey the quest for a lasting legacy. This is sort of the second half of a conversation on men and the challenges of manhood in the 21st century where masculinity is frowned upon and some men feel it necessary to apologize for having been born male, although uh, born in God's image as are women. So we're going to talk with him about that. Also, uh, later this uh, week, we're going to continue our quest to talk with educators from Christian schools in the Portland metro area and provide you an opportunity to Really see how impressive these men and women educators in our community are who have taken on the responsibility of training young people in Christian schools. And as we uh, we focus on their efforts, we want to encourage you to take advantage of opportunities to save on some tuition discounts that are still available. We're nearing the tail end of our efforts, but there are still opportunities to save up to 40 percent on uh, tuition to some of the Christian schools in our area. And you can find out more about that at at, um, at our website, listener savings, that's plural, listenersavings.org, again, for more information. And we would encourage you to do that because this comes once a year. And for families who uh, really have a desire to send their kids for Christian education, this is a great way to start out with the with the sig- substantial savings. Also, want to remind you, Stephen Curtis Chapman is going to be in concert Thursday, April twenty sixth, for an amazing uh, concert. One of Christian's mu- Christian music's most enduring artists, Stephen Curtis Chapman, is going to be presenting um, his music with his guitar and stories of his life and his influences. It's going to be a, a tremendous evening. Again, that's seven o'clock p.m. Thursday, April twenty sixth. And as I mentioned, tickets are still available but they are going fast. So you can go to kpdq.com for more information on that. Well, today marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. The now almost universally revered civil rights leader used nonviolent civil disobedience to protest Jim Crow laws against uh, blacks at the time. And everyone knows that, but not everyone knows he protested that way because of his uh, Christian faith, having been influenced by others who have taken similar message uh, methods. Rather, he became famous in those churches uh, as a youngster for singing. I want to be more and more like Jesus and uh, chose a, a path of uh, Uh, a peaceful protest in that effort. He hadn't been a pastor for very long when in December of uh, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in the front of a bus to a white man. It was in the African-American section where that had been designated in the back of the bus. But if there were more Caucasians, more uh, white people on the bus, then their section would accommodate. Then even those seats that were designated for uh, blacks at the time were to be surrendered. Her feet hurt, she was tired, and she said no. And, of course, that began a series of uh, events um, that are are very familiar to many. 
1963, rather, Attorney General Robert Kennedy directed the FBI to tap into his telephone conversations. President Johnson was concerned that there were communists within the SCLC that would undermine the administration's civil rights initiatives. And despite wiretapping uh, King for five years, the FBI could find no evidence of communist infiltration. In 67, he delivered a speech at the New York uh, City Church titled Beyond Vietnam, speaking to a group called Clergy and Layman Concerned about Vietnam. He strongly condemned the war at that time. And in 68, he went to Memphis to support striking black sanitation workers who were paid much less than their white counterparts for doing the same job. There he delivered his I Have uh, Been to the Mountaintop address. The next day, King was shot and killed by James Earl Jones while standing on a hotel balcony. He was only 39 years at the time. His family believed there was a conspiracy behind that and that James Earl Ray was not responsible for the shooting. And a uh, jury's um, uh, verdict confirmed that uh, decision sometime later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Craig Glass, his book, Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, that was James Earl Ray rather than James Earl Jones. Many men are deeply motivated to earn respect and to attain significance, but they also carry wounds of regret and shame beneath the surface. In Noble Journey, my next guest explores how many men, including Christian men, have bought into stereotypes that portray men as self-absorbed party boys, bumbling fathers, violent predators, adding to the internal doubts that men have about their worth. He writes that we men know that we should matter. We just doubt that we do. We pour enormous amounts of energy into the performance that results in the power, possessions, and prestige that our culture tells us are the signs of significance. The betrayal is that while we're convinced it works for everyone else, it clearly isn't working for us. Well, Craig Glass is the founder and president of Peregrine Ministries with a mission to guide and inspire men on their journey, on their life journey. He served as vice president of ministries at international teams, pastor to men at Willow Creek Community Church, and National Director of Field Ministries at International Students Incorporated. He also is the author of Passages or Passage to Manhood Field Guide and blogs about faith and manhood at peregrineministries.org. Again, he joins us today to talk about his latest book, Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Good afternoon. You know, it's it's heartbreaking to consider that uh, conversations like the uh, the one we're just about to have about the value of men and their place in uh, in society um, has to be discussed because there's been such a significant challenge uh, to manhood that uh, clarification is required. Right. It really is, Georgina. I think that in our culture, we see on a regular basis messages that tend to undermine or question the value of masculinity. And unfortunately, we see headlines almost on a daily basis that seem to reinforce that same message. And so the the impression that we men get on a pretty frequent basis is, I wonder if I actually do matter. The first chapter of your book is titled, Why Men Matter. Now, this is a broad generalization, but in our culture today, I'm going to ask you what would otherwise be a stupid question. Why do men matter and how do men matter? Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I think particularly for those of us who are believers, I think that uh, the fact that God himself revealed himself as masculine and specifically as father 
is a an extremely important message that masculinity matters. And then when Jesus revealed himself, when Jesus was born and confined himself to flesh and blood, he came as a son, as a man. Uh, those are images, and that sets the stage for those of us who are men, that uh, really lays a spiritual mantle on our shoulders that we have the same kind of calling to bring blessing and self-sacrifice into the lives of others. That's a foundational reason, spiritually speaking, why I think men matter. I know when we talk about the value and worth of men and the significant role that they are called to play uh, in life and culture, uh, many assume that if you elevate and talk about the value of men, that you have to somehow denigrate the value of women, that that yes. in the context of talking about women, that you have to somehow um, reduce the value of men. Talk yeah. about, you know, the, the relationship of men and women and uh, whether or not we can both have value um, uh, given some of the challenges that we face, particularly in our culture. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I frequently find myself when I'm communicating to men or women and I say, I, I really would like you to know how much men matter. I frequently follow that up particularly with women, by saying, and ladies, that is not a statement that says you don't matter, and it's certainly not a statement that says men matter more than you. Um, God's love is not a zero-sum game. It's not like there's a limited amount mm -hmm. of significance or love that God has available for any one gender. It's limitless. But I'm a man, and I speak to men, and so my message is specifically to that gender to remind men, despite the regret or the shame that we live with because of some of the poor choices we've made in life, you matter. You have significance. When I speak to women, I give them the same message. Boy, you have no idea how much you matter. One of the things that you write about is is shame and freedom from shame. Is there a, yeah. a consistent thread that runs through uh, males, perhaps uh, males in our culture, um, that that is really shame? And, and what what is the source of that shame? Yeah, uh, I'll answer the second question first, Georgine. The source is the enemy. I believe that the the message of shame is the enemy's primary tool to undermine and to um, uh, send men to the sidelines, the message that what you have done in the past and who you are as a broken, sinful man eliminates you from spiritual significance. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt is based on behavior. I made a bad choice and I did something bad. It's right and wrong, and it's kind of undeniable. Shame, on the other hand, is not about an, an action or behavior. It's a message of identity and significance that says, I didn't just do something bad. I am something bad. I'm defective like no one else. And this is a secret about me that I have to hide from anyone on the outside who might want to judge or condemn me. That's the message of shame. And I know that... Most of us men, and I suspect most women, but I know men, most of us men carry a message of shame just beneath the surface.
I think it's important to talk about the author of that shame. We've, we've certainly commented on the role that culture plays, particularly at this time, at, at this time, at undermining the value of men. But the author of that shame is not just limited to the culture. No, that's right. Um, the author of the shame is the enemy himself. First Peter five eight says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to to find who he can devour. I think self-condemnation and shame is the message he sows in the hearts of minds and minds of many men. So you uh, prescribe living in purity as the the remedy for um, for that that shame that so often uh, prevents us from fully experiencing uh, the the joy that God has intended for us when we live out what He's created us to be. Talk a bit about living in purity and what that means in the life of a, a man of faith. Yeah, I think in particular it means walking in openness with others, walking in community for men, walking with one or two or three or a dozen other men with whom we can be honest. I think the, the power of shame grows and multiplies in secrecy and hiddenness and darkness. Well, in fact, I know it does. I've experienced it myself. It's when I take the risk or other men take the risk to tell the truth with un, one other man or a small group of men to say, here's what I struggle with. In fact, here's what I did with my uh, my son last night. I lost my temper and I swung at him. Or here's the website I was on last Saturday night before going to church Sunday morning. When we have the kinds of relationships with other men that we can take that kind of courageous humility and reveal the journey that we're on, what we experience in return, or should anyway, is not more shame and condemnation and judgment. It should be, and it often is, embrace, welcome, deepened relationship, and a commitment together to spur one another on to love and good works. And I appreciate your mentioning that half of it, because uh, being vulnerable is one thing. The people with whom you are being vulnerable and their response is, is certainly the other. So there's two sides of that. And uh, men involved in that kind of community are required to, to engage in both. That's right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I have grown up in the church and I love the church. I think the church is the hope of the world. But I can also say, in my experience and with many other men, unfortunately, in the church is the last place that some men will tell the truth. Yeah. yeah. Because they have experienced immediate reaction or judgment or condemnation or preaching. It's, it's just what happens, unfortunately, sometimes. Who we tell the truth to um, is very dependent on the character and the grace that's demonstrated by that person. We're going to continue our conversation. Uh, we're talking this afternoon with Craig Glass, his latest book, Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Craig Glass. He's the founder and president of Peregrine Ministries with a mission to guide and inspire men on their life journey. His latest book is titled Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. It's divided into three sections, Trailhead, Where to Begin, the second part, Identity, and Legacy. I want to focus uh, on the uh, the second uh, part of the book, and that is identity. We know that 
every man is created in the image of God. But what, let's talk a bit about the importance of a man's identity as he navigates life uh, and, and uh, their effort to, to honor God. Right. I think for men it's really important for us, or helpful for us anyway, to have some images or pictures, video clips, that give us an idea of who we are called to be. And I attended a men's retreat about 20 years ago and heard the terms of king, warrior, mentor, and lover given as um, images that we are called to live out. And I was fascinated by that. I was stirred by that. And I wanted to see where in Scripture do I see some foundation for this. And the first thing that really stood out to me was Mark 12:30 and 31. When the Lord is, answers the question, what's the most important commandment for us to live out? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And I thought, there it is. Heart, we're called to be a lover. With all of our soul, we're called to be a king. We reflect God's kingly authority. With all of our mind, we're called to be mentors. We gain wisdom and pass that on to others. And with all of our strength, we're called to be warriors who fight on behalf of others. Those are the pictures that I, I'm stirred by, and I love to pass on to other men with biblical foundation that demonstrates we don't use these roles and this authority or this power for ourselves. We use it on behalf of others. Let's talk about, in particular, the role of king. Um, Your subtitle of that chapter is A Soul Anchored in Confidence. Again, as women listening might interpret that to mean that that men are to lord over them in ways that that fall outside of what God has prescribed. So so talk a little bit more about what that means as a man's identity. Yeah, well, the the confidence, as, as I portrayed, is not based on wealth or position or power or anything like that. And certainly it's not based on uh, lording it over other people. The confidence that I uh, encourage men to view is from Psalm 139, and it's the same truth for women. We were knit together in our mother's womb. Before we spent one day, the Father knew us. That foundation gives us a sense of significance and confidence in who we are, first of all. And then secondly, that God demonstrated his love for us, Romans 5, 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that God knit us together on purpose and then that Christ died for us, that gives us unlimited significance, both men and women. That's where our confidence rests. And so when we don't need to strive to impress other people or control other people, we can rest in that confidence. The third part of your book reflect, is reflected rather in the subtitle, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. Uh, let's talk about a legacy and um, why it's important for a man to be mindful and intentional about the legacy he will Uh, mindful or not, leave behind. Yeah, that's right. I talk in terms of our inheritance and then our legacy. Our inheritance, what I'm talking about is not at all our bank account or property or territory or money that we get, we receive from our ancestors. It's the story. It's the soil that we were raised in through family, our culture, our schools, our churches. It's the imprint that we received. And all of us received some degree of blessing and some degree of woundedness. We didn't get to choose the inheritance we received. It was laid in our laps. 
and without any degree of intentionality, we will pass on that same story into the laps of other people, men and women and children in particular that we impact. That's the legacy, what we pass on to others. Um, God transforms our legacy. That can be transformed so that what we receive does not have to be what we pass on to others. And so that's what I encourage men to view is just because you grew up in a broken family or your father was violently angry or there's the story of imprisonment or drug abuse in your story, in your past, that's not what you have to pass on. Thank goodness we are called to be transformed by God's power and his grace in our lives, and we can pass something on to those that follow us. Well, and that is such a hopeful uh, statement because our past does not have to dictate uh, right. what our future looks like and what we leave behind, that mistakes are inevitable. All of us will make them, some more serious than others, but there's something that can be done uh, once those mistakes uh, have been made and repented of and you're moving forward. Yes, thank goodness. We're not condemned to do the same the same kind of broken behavior that we received. There is change. There is transformation by the power of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. I really appreciate that in this section of the book, you um, write about the legacy that men leave to one another, to women, to children, and to the world. And I think it broadens the scope and the vision of the importance of a man's life and what he does and what he ultimately will leave behind. Right. And you you mentioned it a minute ago, Georgine. Uh, We will pass something on. That's guaranteed. There will be an imprint. I I refer to it as sort of like our fingerprint in the lives of other people. Once we're gone, we will leave something behind. Um, The hope that we have as Christ followers is that it can be primarily about blessing and kindness and love rather than self-serving, self-absorbing, other-harming behavior that we see all the time in the world around us. You end the book with um, God's charge to men, and yeah. this puts, uh, puts a man's life in a much broader context and reminds us of the accountability that each of us has before God, ultimately. Talk briefly about God's charge to men. Yeah, um, it's, it's the calling to be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage and be strong, followed by do all of these things in love. I think that first verse, be on your guard, be strong, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, all of those speak to us about manly qualities we all aspire to. We love that. We may not be that guy yet, but we would like to be more like that kind of man. Then it's followed by the verse that says, do everything in love. That's a very different message. It's almost taking the verse upside down and saying, all of that strength and power and firmness and courage, don't do it just for you. Your life is not just about you. It's about living on behalf of other people. A life with uh, with few regrets. Craig Glass, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. Once again, the book is titled Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. And uh, just an excellent um, review of the the challenges of being a man and the value of men who choose to do it well. The book is published by Peregrine and uh, was just released this year. 
59 minutes after 4 o'clock. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Anna Quintana. She is a senior policy analyst. We're going to talk about the caravan that has been making its way to the U.S. southern border. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today's program, James Blend, is producing. Later this hour, we'll talk with Anna Quintana. She is a, a senior policy analyst on Latin America and the Western Hemisphere at the Heritage Foundation. The Washington Post reported that the migration, uh, the migrant caravan, rather, has at least been temporarily stalled in Mexico. We'll try to bring you up to date on that. Um, and uh, she also is going to talk with us about a statement made last month from Mexico's, or rather by Mexico's foreign minister, stating that the relationship with the United States is closer than it was with previous U.S. administrations. Now, that may leave some scratching their heads. We'll get some clarification on that and what this caravan means, what their intentions are, and and uh, where they are headed. So that's coming up later in today's program. Well, the embattled Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt, he fired back at critics today, defending his uh, decision to take a $50 a day condo rental from the wife of a lobbyist and claiming he just found out about a controversial pay raise for two of his staff members. My staff and I found out about it yesterday, and I changed it, Pruitt said. He was being interviewed on Fox News in an exclusive, wide-ranging interview. When pressed to provide specifics, Pruitt said he wasn't sure who would be held accountable or if the person who authorized the raise was a career EPA employee or a political employee. Uh, You don't know. You run the agency, he was asked by Ed Henry. You don't know who did it. I found out this yesterday, he said, and I corrected the action and we are in the process of finding out how it took place and correcting it. Pruitt responded, though he didn't say if anyone would be fired. Now, some are suggesting that he threw his staff under the bus and didn't take full responsibility as the head of the agency. In March, Pruitt approached the White House and asked for substantial pay raises for two of his closest aides. And uh, Pruitt asked to bump Greenwald's salary, uh, Sarah Greenwald, one of those aides, uh, to $164,200 from $107,435. Uh, annually, and the other, uh, Milan Hupp, um, to $114,000, up from 86460 Well, since the employee were uh, political appointees, the White House needed to sign off on uh, on it, but refused. Well, according to the Atlantic, someone at the APA, EPA rather used a little-known provision of the Safe Drinking Water Act to skirt around the White House's decision and greenlight uh, the pair's salary increases. Uh, So hang on. Both of these staffers who got these um, large pay raises are friends of yours, I believe, from Oklahoma, right? Henry asked. Pruitt responded, they are staffers here in the agency. They are your friends, Henry asked. Well, they serve a very important purpose, Pruitt replied. And you did not know that they got these large pay raises, Henry pressed. Pruitt responded, I did not know that they got pay raises until yesterday. Well, Pruitt has also come under fire for leasing a Capitol Hill condo that was tied to a prominent fossil fuels lobbyist for $50 a night, though the agency's ethics official said the condo deal didn't violate federal ethics rules. It has raised eyebrows about Pruitt. Uh, He told uh, Fox in the uh, interview that he rented the condo from a fellow Oklahoman and that everything was above board. That was like an Airbnb situation, Pruitt said, and is of his home located a block from the U.S. 
capital. When I was not there, the landlord, they had access to the entirety of the facility. When I was there, I only had access to a room. Well, Pruitt also faced growing questions about his frequent first-class travel that has led to media scrutiny and speculation about his job security. Pruitt has spent about $2,000 and $2,600 uh, on first-class flights back to Oklahoma. He also dropped $1,400 to $4,000 on flights to New York, Boston, and Texas, according to reports. Some are suggesting that uh, that is less than previous administration officials have spent. But at this point and in this environment, he's going to have to answer those questions uh, perhaps differently than his predecessors did. Again, this interview taking place uh, earlier today, and uh, we'll continue to follow that story. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, he's going to testify next week on Capitol Hill regarding recent revelations about how the world's most popular social media site collects and uses people's data. That's according to a House committee making the announcement today. Zuckerberg has said uh, in recent weeks that he would testify following allegations that the political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica obtained data on the tens of thousands of Facebook users to try to influence elections is going to testify before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on April the 11th, according to leaders of the committee. There will also be questions about his uh, cooperation with uh, the Obama administration or campaign and their use of information and access given. This hearing will be an important opportunity to shed light on critical consumer data, um, uh, says the uh, chairman of the committee, Representative Greg Walden, and New Jersey Representative Frank Pallone, the committee's top Democrats. the privacy issue to help all Americans better understand what happens to their personal information online. We appreciate Mr. Zuckerberg's willingness to testify before the committee, and we look forward to him answering the questions, the committee chair. Uh, chairman said, well, Cambridge Analytica worked on Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Facebook purportedly has more than two billion active monthly users. The 33 year old, a billionaire himself who co-founded the company in 2004 while at Harvard, declined a recent request from the United Kingdom Parliamentary Committee to testify on that matter. But the company reportedly uh, will instead send a top Facebook executive overseas to answer questions. Later this month, we're going to see two critical Senate confirmation processes uh, be initiated, and both proceedings could end up with very uh, contentious outcomes. Mike Pompeo, the nominee for Secretary of State, Gina Haspel, the nominee for Director of the CIA, they're expected to be grilled by select Republican and Democrat senators who've raised concerns about their positions on critical issues. Both Pompeo and Haspel are highly qualified, but the landscape of the United States Senate has changed significantly since Donald Trump took office in January of 2016. While uh, Republicans, rather, will be able to uh, push the two nominations out of the respective committees for a floor vote, there isn't a guarantee that the nominees are going to be confirmed. Currently, the GOP holds a 51-49 edge in the Senate, but with Rand Paul going on record saying that he does not support either nominee and John McCain's cancer treatment regimen, keeping him on the sidelines since December, the Republican Party has very little margin for error. An analysis of the two nominees Nominations shows that the Pompeo proceedings will be the most combative. While he was confirmed for the CIA director position last year with 
46 to 63, or rather 32 vote. Several Democrats have announced either reconsidering their votes or that they remain on the fence until he testifies before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Recent reports indicate that Pompeo will face a brutal confirmation fight, and even if he makes it through the questioning with uh, no um, major errors, his nomination may still face obstacles. If Rand Paul and all of the Democrats on the Foreign Relations Committee cast a no vote, then the Republican Party leadership would be forced to use an obscure rule that would still allow the nomination for a Senate-wide vote. This type of maneuver has never been utilized in the history of the Senate would be, according to Foreign Policy magazine, the first time in modern history a Secretary of State nominee moves to a Senate-wide vote without the approval of the Foreign Relations Committee. Again, hypothetical at this point. The Haspel nomination, on the other hand, looks uh, to be the easier fight for the Republican Party, but not by very much. Haspel is a decorated career intelligence officer. She is expected to face numerous questions from the Senate Intelligence Committee pertaining to her oversight of the S- of the CIA's black site interrogation program in Thailand. Uh, the program... Uh, where waterboarding was conducted on a regular basis has drawn the attention of numerous Republican and Democrat committee members and was based on an article suggesting that she oversaw that program. The author of the article has since withdrawn that information, but the controversy remains. Um, Both Republicans and Democrat committee members uh, will be uh, will make this the topic of the questioning for Haspel. According to numerous reports, she is considered by her peers as a consummate professional, has the uh, skill set to lead the CIA. However, as Rich Lowry pointed out last week, Republicans have to make sure that her nomination doesn't denigrate into a 21st century borking. Those of you who've been around will know what that means. The U.S. Foreign and Intelligence Committees, they have to prove, uh, they need proven leadership, rather, that can guide them against the plethora of uh, threats that face our nation on a daily basis. A failure with uh, either nomination would be a severe blow to the country as a whole with those positions left unfilled. And that's why the Trump administration has to put all of its energy into ensuring that both Pompeo and Haspel are confirmed. But again, it's going to be a challenge. A U.S. Marine Corps helicopter crashed on Tuesday, killing its four crew members during exercises along the U.S.-Mexico border near Plaster City, California, according to military officials, reminding us that men and women in uniform, whether they are deployed abroad or uh, simply maintaining uh, their training here, um, they are in harm's way. And what they do is very dangerous. We need to keep that in mind, to be grateful, to pray for them and support them whenever we can. According to a Facebook post from the nearby Naval Air Facility in El Centro, we are currently still responding to what we have confirmed as a single helicopter incident. And of course, there have been some uh, claims that the equipment is not sufficiently maintained because the budget simply has not been there. Let's hope that will be remedied very soon. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Anna Quintana will be my guest coming up in our next segment. She's a senior policy analyst. We're going to talk about the the convoy of migrants that are making their way, a caravan to uh, the United States' southern border. But are they all intent on coming to the United States? We'll talk more in detail about what this is about and whether or not this is unprecedented in terms of the timing and the numbers. Again, Anna Quintana will join us in our our next segment.
Well, believe it or not, Planned Parenthood's Cecil Richards, who's retiring, I understand, is a huge believer in adoption. This is very encouraging for those of us who've been a part of the uh, pro-life movement. Sadly, however, she's a huge believer in adoption for dogs. Yesterday, before heading out on a national book tour, the boss of America's richest abortion business decided to act out the uh, title of her new memoir, Make Trouble. In a Twitter post that struck most people as either incredibly insensitive and shockingly unaware, Richards took a moment to pitch what her organization usually doesn't, compassion. Well, above a picture of her dash honed, uh, Richards encouraged people to hashtag adopt, don't shop. Of course, the idea of rescuing dogs isn't a bad idea, but it's certainly a stark contrast to what she's been advocating for babies for the last 12 years. Maybe if children were fluffy with four legs, she'd understand the importance of saving them. Well, instead, she talks about giving pets homes while her own business spends its days ripping unborn children out of theirs. Unfortunately, that's the hypocrisy of the uh, Planned Parenthood organization. Forget the humans, save the dogs. They're worth adopting. If Richards wants more Americans to adopt, you sure could uh, have fooled, well, those of us who have been watching. Planned Parenthood is so obsessed with making a buck that the idea of adoption rarely, if ever, comes up. Sure, the organization will take credit for a few moms choosing a life to... to uh, feed the uh, notion that it does more than abortion, but the numbers are hardly flattering. In its uh, latest annual report produced by Planned Parenthood itself, the Alan Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood could only claim one adoption referral for every 83 abortions. If she wants to rescue dogs, she might want to show a little more concern for their prospective owners. Well, back in the mid-90s, when people still use the words safe, legal, and rare with a straight face, Planned Parenthood may have actually seen some value to adoption. They referred for about 11,866 of them in 1994, five times more than today. Almost 25 years later, the focus has changed. In this business, it's about cash, not kids. And 3.5 million abortions later, Richard's 12 years have proven how lucrative Planned Parenthood's killing machine can be. Sitting on a record setting $1.45 billion in revenue, the group can afford its pet political projects and massive leadership salaries. At last check, Richard's made $700,000 a year, almost twice the salary of the president of the United States. Not bad for a nonprofit. Well, the only thing Planned Parenthood has more of than money is controversy, and both seem to be fueling Americans' urgency to cut the organization's taxpayer ties. They know that if uh, Planned Parenthood is spending 96% of its time on abortion, it certainly doesn't need our $537 million for the messy 4% that's left. For starters, abortion is a cash cow. They could just as easily pay for the rest of their operation with its profits. Secondly, how do we suppose to, uh, uh, how are we rather supposed to believe that the more than half billion in federal and state funds are actually going to the tiny uh, sliver of other services they rarely produce, uh, provide? Simple, we can't. And even if Richard's group were trust- trustworthy, rather, a prospect that faded with every mammogram lie, every sexual abuse cover up, every invoice for baby body parts, There's no denying that the massive pool of taxpayer funds helps free up the money Planned Parenthood needs for the deadlier side of the business or its election hobbies. Sure, it's illegal for Richards to spend a penny of government money on abortion or campaigning, but Congress makes it a whole lot easier to spend politically when they're rewarding the group financially. 
need proof? Check out uh, news from Wisconsin where a Planned Parenthood there, a clinic, one of 606 uh, such clinics here in the United States, has just been fined uh, by the FEC for hiding more than $116,000 in support for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Imagine, imagine, rather, how many of the other state chapters are operating under the radar, refusing to disclose their political expenses. Tony Perkins writes that for those reasons and for so many more, I can understand the outrage from pro-lifers that Congress kept the taxpayer gravy train flowing in last month's omnibus spending bill. I also understand, he writes, the limits of the current GOP majority, which is the biggest hurdle to accomplishing what 60 percent of Americans want, defunding Planned Parenthood. But some things are worth fighting for, and life is one of them. In the meantime, the Family Research Council is hoping that Donald Trump will do what Republicans did not, sever some of taxpayers' financial ties to Richard's group. Behind closed doors, there's a serious discussion taking place right now in Washington about one of the weapons at the president's disposal, disposal rather, a long-forgotten rule from the Reagan years that could blow an $80 million hole in Planned Parenthood's accounts. If the Trump administration revives the co-location regulation from the 1980s, Planned Parenthood could still get Title X funds, but they wouldn't be able to offer those services in the same clinics where they perform abortions. They'd have to split up their offices, probably at great expense. Ultimately, Planned Parenthood would be be forced, rather, to choose between dropping their abortion services from any location that gets Title X dollars and moving those abortion operations off-site. Either way, it could take away a significant $80 million cushion from the group's family planning funds. Until Republican reinforcements arrive, that would certainly help take the sting out of the current situation. In the meantime, Richards is out on the road, missing her dog, and more importantly, missing the point. The next time Planned Parenthood's president uh, wants to rescue something, she might want to consider the next generation of humans, that is. Hmm. Well, the Trump administration announced today that the president will sign a proclamation to send the National Guard to the southern border immediately in response to what it describes as an unacceptable flow of drugs, criminal activity and illegal immigrants. Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said at the White House press briefing that it would be done in conjunction with governors and that the administration hopes the deployment begins immediately. Well, despite a number of steps this administration has taken, we continue to see unacceptable levels of illegal drugs, dangerous gang activity, uh, transnational criminal organizations and illegal immigration flow across the border, she said. She went on to say the president has directed that the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security work together with our governors to deploy our National Guard to our southwest border to assist the Border Patrol. The president will be signing a proclamation to that effect today, which he has done. Details about what the National Guard would do, how much it would cost, how many would be deployed, for how long were not immediately disclosed. Nielsen did point out a uh, point rather to what she described as increasing fraud and exploited loopholes among arrivals of on the southern border, saying the traffickers have been had been advertising that if migrants have children with them, that they are more likely to be released into the United States. She also said that almost 50 percent of arriving aliens are from Central America. Now, in a few moments, we're going to talk with Ana Quintana. She is a senior policy analyst um, uh, on Latin America and 
the Western Hemisphere at the Heritage Foundation. And we're going to talk about what this uh, caravan actually uh, means. Now, we've been hearing a number of different versions of what's happening. Earlier, we heard that some 1,200 were making their way to the southern border with the expectation that all of them were seeking uh, asylum or refugee status here in the United States. And we heard earlier that there were small groups that were breaking apart. And they the new strategy would be that smaller groups would attempt to come to the United States um, uh, without coming in mass. Uh, earlier today, we also heard that, in fact, that Migrant, uh, the caravan, has abandoned its plan to travel to the United States uh, border. What we've also learned is that the Mexican government um, has, in fact, been trying to process those who have come through from South America, the vast majority of them from Honduras, uh, to determine what's the appropriate uh, action, whether to send them back to Honduras or the country of origin, whether to uh, seek a place for them to remain in Mexico or uh, to send them off to seek um, uh, status here in the United States as a refugee. So uh, it, it appears that the uh, Mexican government is doing um, at least what it can in this case, given the uh, the tweets from the president uh, to try to at least um, see to it that those who have come through their country are uh, are processed. Now, the interesting thing, if you put all of the intrigue and the legal and the sovereign government issues uh, behind, you have 1,200 people who are making their way across Mexico. And I, I think we're talking about some, um, what, 800, 700, 800 miles uh, to travel to the southern border of the United States, or for some, as we'll discuss in a few moments, uh, to make their way into Mexico. Uh, the stories behind each one of these individuals, and there are some heart-gripping uh, stories, um, seeking some safety, seeking a better life, uh, really does raise uh, serious questions about the challenges they are leaving behind to try to survive and uh, thrive. We'll address those on another occasion, but I'm looking forward to talking with Ana Quintana uh, about um, what this caravan means and what's likely to happen next. So we'll get into that in just a few moments. I want to remind you, as we uh, will do tomorrow on the program, in an interview with one of the Christian school leaders that we're highlighting uh, in our metro area, uh, that there are opportunities for discounts on Christian education for the tuition up to 40 percent. And while this campaign has been going on since February, we still have some tuition discounts that are being offered. And I really want to encourage you to check out the website, listenersavings.com for more information. And there you can find out if there's a school in your community that's uh, still offering a, a discount of up to 40 percent uh, for your grandchildren or your sons and daughters to attend a school in your area. We have a couple schools that we're still going to be uh, conducting interviews with, and I'm looking forward to sharing uh, a little bit about who they are and what they're doing. And uh, again, it's exciting to me because uh, I find it encouraging to learn um, how these men and women of faith are equipping young people academically and spiritually for the life ahead. So we'll get into that uh, tomorrow. And I think we have a couple of other interviews coming, but the uh, website listenersavings.com. All right. Up next, Anna Quintana will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, much attention has been paid to a caravan of migrants who have stalled apparently in Mexico, we're being told. The Washington Post is reporting that the caravan has at least been temporarily stalled in Mexico as the migrants are unsure of their future should they reach the United States border. All of this in the context of the president saying he's going to deploy the National Guard to protect the uh, the U.S. border. But what should we make of what's going 
going on? Is this a unique event uh, in which uh, these individuals seeking asylum in the United States or in uh, Mexico are making their way south? Well, here to to talk with us about that is Anna Quintana. She's a senior policy analyst on Latin America and the Western Hemisphere at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, let's talk about the caravan of Central American migrants. This isn't the first time it happens. In fact, it's sort of a seasonal thing. What has distinguished what's happening this time from what's happened before? Yeah, like you said, this is something uh, the organization that's running the caravan, uh, People Without Borders, Pueblos Sin Fronteras, has done for about 15 years. Um, And what distinguishes this one, what makes this year's caravan so different is they wanted more media attention on this because they felt not enough. Um, eyes have been paid have have paid attention to their cause, so they have a BuzzFeed reporter with them. They decided to be uh, politically crass and launch this kind of launch the publicity for this over Easter weekend, and it definitely got people's attention, but not in the way that they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Now, the numbers were t- being told roughly 1,000 people, although we're also being told now those numbers may have broken up into smaller groups. Are the numbers remarkable, or is that uh, consistent with what we've seen in the past? No, I mean, the numbers aren't remarkable. If you look at the numbers of of Central Americans that attempt to cross into the United States, I mean, just in January and February alone, Mexico uh, deported about 15,000 Central American migrants. So that's, so I think 2000, but 2001 group is what kind of makes this unique that they're all kind of coming in one large group. And what's happening now is the Mexican government has intercepted them and they are vetting the migrants to see who has just cause to stay in Mexico and apply for asylum and who needs to be repatriated back to their own country. So in the sense of will these migrants as a caravan of 1,200 make it to the U.S. border, that's not going to happen anymore. And that's Mm -hmm. thanks to Mexico. In fact, that's not the goal of everyone that's part of the caravan. Some would like to stay in Mexico. Others are seeking asylum in the United States. Now, some are suggesting that uh, this action and the uh, the comments that the president has made via uh, Twitter um, have exacerbated uh, the dysfunction between the United States and Mexican uh, officials. What What do we know about how the United States and Mexico are working together or failing to work together to deal with uh, this this problem for both? the United States and Mexico? I mean, the, the media has this incredible obsession that the U.S.-Mexico relationship is, is, is doing poorly, when in fact it's the complete opposite. Just last February, Mexico's foreign minister said that Mexico's relationship with the Trump administration is much closer than to any of, Mexi- than to any of um, Trump's predecessors. And that's incredibly significant. I mean, Mexico and the United States just the other day signed three agreements to counter illicit trafficking. And reportedly, the New York Times has been reporting that there's over two dozen more agreements in the works. And this is completely outside of NAFTA, right? So we're in the midst of negotiating NAFTA, renegotiating NAFTA. And then aside from that, there are these other massive agreements going on. And I think the, te- the, the true testament of the strength of the relationship is that less than 48 hours after this made news, the Mexican government, to a great political cost, because they are paying a massive political cost here, stepped in for the United States and averted this massive crisis that could have landed on our border. Now, one of the things the president has said in his tweets is that unless this is dealt with in a way that's satisfactory uh, to him and others in the United States, that uh, uh, 
humanitarian aid to Honduras, for example, and NAFTA would be in play. Um, is this uh, is this intended for a U.S. audience or is this something that's resonated in Mexico in light of what you've just told us about the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico? Well, I think it's for both audiences, right? Because I think so the United States, whenever it comes to any sort of foreign aid, whether it's security assistance, economic development aid, whatever, we have strict requirements on our aid, certain requirements of democracy and governance, transparency, accountability, especially. And if there is the appearance, if we see any sort of data or facts that other governments are not upholding their requirements, foreign aid would definitely be a matter. It would definitely be up for debate. And the levels of foreign aid would definitely be up for debate because there really would not then be proof as to whether this aid has been effective or not. So I think it's it's smart and it's healthy for the president to essentially put everything on the table and state that everything is negotiable. Now, as uh, I mentioned earlier, the president has announced that the National Guard will be deployed to protect the U.S. border. Um, there are limitations in terms of what they can and cannot do. Um, I know previous administrations, the uh, Bush administration as well as the Obama administration, uh, did similar actions, although perhaps in, in different ways. How alarmed should the U.S. population be? that the president has chosen under this circumstance to deploy the National Guard? And what might we expect um, they will be uh, doing uh, once deployed? I think I don't think we should be alarmed or freaked out or anything by that. I mean, the National Guard is simply being sent to kind of be a stopgap as Customs and Border Protection officials kind of ramp up their presence on the border. I mean, we're nearing a season where migration is definitely going to, where we're going to see an uptick in migration. This always tends to happen around spring as the weather gets better. So it's smart that they're kind of filling those gaps where they're needed because it takes time, as you probably know, with the federal government, everything takes a very long time. It's a slow and bureaucratic process to vet somebody, hire somebody, train them, bring them on board. In the meanwhile, we have National Guardsmen that are ready to fulfill that mission. Well, one of the most significant things that you've said in our conversation is a a quote uh, from uh, Mexico's foreign minister stating that the relationship between the United States and Mexico is stronger than it has been under previous administrations. That's a, a, a message that's not being told here in the United States. What might we expect from that fact, whether or not we're being uh, informed about uh, that kind of a statement and what's uh, what's transpiring between uh, these two countries? Well, I would hope that the media would actually start reporting the full truth and not just these half or kind of inaccurate truths that they like to report. Like when Trump was down viewing the border wall prototypes a few weeks ago, the president actually said about Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto is a great guy. We're working out our differences. He's a great negotiator. We have a great relationship. The media never reported that. The media also never reported that Mexico was unilaterally exempted from steel tariffs. Um, so I think we're going to start seeing more of these actions. We're definitely seeing a, a, a more a publicized improvement of the relationship. And I think once a NAFTA, once a NAFTA deal is finally finalized, which it should be by the end of April, we're probably going to see the release of these other agreements. And I do think these other agreements are probably going to be based upon countering opioid trafficking. And the majority of opioids mm-hmm. and heroin come from Mexico. We're going to see a, a significant uptick in, in cooperation with the U.S. and Mexico. And that's a very positive. Absolutely. Very encouraging. One other thing I'll ask you, we've spent most of our attention in this country, and rightfully so, on our southern border and what should be done to protect
protect uh, the the sovereignty of our border. But let's talk about Mexican uh, Mexico's southern border and the challenges they face, and whether or not um, there's uh, there are strong uh, protections of their southern border that allows migrants to come through Mexico uh, to attempt to enter the United States. Yeah, so Mexico shares about a 600-mile-long border with Guatemala, and there are definitely there definitely has been a significant. Um, for they've, they've definitely furthered their efforts to protect their southern border. Obviously, much more work can be done because it's not just the land border we have to worry about. It's also the sea. Mexico is along the Caribbean. As also, it also has massive land along the Pacific as well. So on both sides, I mean, you have to worry about the land. You have to worry about the seaports of entry. And you also have to worry about folks that are essentially flying in and then maybe trying to make their way upwards to the United States. I think, but thankfully, there's just so many means of cooperation between the U.S. and the Mexican government to kind of to to be a bit a bit more vigilant as to when these individuals arrive and who are just kind of higher threat individuals in the sense of folks wanting to come to the United States. So I think, you know, while there definitely remains a lot of a lot more work to be done, the concern should definitely be a little bit further south with what's happening in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Well, Anna Quintana, thank you so much for talking with us and helping us to better understand the challenge on our uh, western border as well as um, uh, I should say southern border as well as that of Mexico. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Have a good one. Again, Anna Quintana is a senior policy analyst on Latin America and the Western Hemisphere at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Brian Stiller. He is the author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. And I love um, reading about uh, how the faith began in Jerusalem and the outermost parts of the earth. And so we're going to uh, kind of take that odyssey along with Mr. Stiller as he has provided a, a map, if you will, of the spread of the gospel across the uh, across the globe. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. And then on Friday, assuming that there's no um, more serious breaking news to discuss. And that's always a possibility, in which case we would, of course, cover that. We're going to lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, this past week, of course, was Holy Week. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is a very somber time leading up to Resurrection Sunday, which is the most significant uh, occasion of uh, in the, the Christian worldview. Well, Facebook had a bit of a back and forth from a Catholic university and their attempt to place an ad or rather several uh, ads uh, about Jesus on the cross. And the uh, the ad was uh, deemed to be, in fact, to uh, be uh, to quote what they wrote, your image, video, thumbnail or video can't contain shocking, sensational or excessively violent content. Now, the, the picture that they wanted to post as part of their uh, their ad, again, this Franciscan university uh, was a pretty um, cleaned up version of Christ's crucifixion fiction on the cross. In fact, it's a um, it's a rather fanciful version. So it's not the, the gory image that would have reflected what actually happened on the cross. But it does uh, reflect the events uh, that that took place involving the historic Jesus. And they wanted to place these ads on Good Friday. Now, the first response is, you know, what's wrong with these people? The truth is um, the secular world will never uh, be able to grasp, appreciate um, uh, reflect uh, the accurately 
uh, the story of the gospel, whether it's the resurrection of Jesus or any other element. So if we are relying on them to get it, uh, then we we need to balance our expectations and we're on a a fool's errand. But I thought this was rather interesting. Caleb Park uh, reports that Facebook apologized for rejecting that ad on Good Friday from the Catholic University depicting Jesus on the cross. Now, the university was uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville. Well, they apologized. The social media giant labeled the religious image image rather shocking and excessively violent and the truth is the crucifixion of Christ was shocking it was excessively violent and that's part of uh, what is so uh, challenging for us as believers to accept when we consider the thing that put him there was not just the sins of the whole world but mine as well I wasn't born at that time and yet my sins held him there and were nailed um, through his hands and feet because of my own sin. So it was shocking and excessively violent, although the image that they were attempting to uh, depict wasn't um, wasn't such a violent image. Anyway, the Franciscan University of Steubenville published 10 Facebook advertisements for its master's degree program in theology, um, cate- let's see, it's catechetics, and evangelism. Tom Crow of uh, Steubenville's web communications director said that he doesn't know why only the one clearly depicting the uh, uh, the cross and Jesus on it was rejected. He said it may have been the algorithm or a low-level staffer who uh, had something against Christianity. For whatever reason, Facebook rejected the cross. Well, Facebook apologized, as I mentioned, on Wednesday for that mistake, saying our team processes millions of ads each week, and sometimes we make mistakes. A Facebook post spokesperson said, uh, this image uh, does not violate our ad policy. So it clearly was a mistake and their policy would have allowed it had it been caught. We apologize for the error and have already let the advertiser know we approve their ad. Unfortunately, it was past the time that they wanted to post the ad, but that's just the way it went. While Facebook said the ad was officially approved on Monday, Crow, um, again from the university, uh, says that their claims are demonstrably false, showing that the ad was actually rejected on Monday by Facebook. That said, it is also true that Facebook approved other ads with the exact same image, which again leads me to believe it wasn't an algorithm, but was a low-level staffer uh, who skims many, many ads and just had something personal against this one. I'll reiterate that I'm not claiming systematic religious bigotry at Facebook, he went on to say, but in this case, it seems something like that happened in a one-off situation. It also points to uh, perhaps a larger uh, issue of how we uh, are given access to information on Facebook. Now, this is uh, Facebook is not a, a publicly owned. It's we don't have the right to determine what will and will not be placed there. But we are given the impression that we have uh, the right to expect that the freedom of speech will be exercised there. Uh, but we our information really is much more managed than we imagine it to be. We assume that what we see is all there is, that what is presented there is what people have attempted to communicate. But we're learning more and more that uh, decisions are being made as to what uh, is going to make it on the platform and what is not going to make it on Facebook and other platforms as well. And as we discussed at the top of the program, YouTube was indicted in the shooting that took place uh, yesterday, midday, uh, for that very reason. Well, Facebook apologized for rejecting the ad on Good Friday. Uh, Crow called the rejection a teachable moment and reminder for all. He wrote in a piece published on the university's website titled, He Was Rejected, that this is how humanity reacts to the idea of God humbling himself to death 
on a cross. This is sensational. This is shocking, he wrote. This is only possible because of the excessive violence that he endured for us. And although now approved, Crow said he hopes people do take something away from it. Um, I hope people take another look at the cross and see what God did for us, he said, whether it's a return to faith or an investigation of this weird thing called Christianity. He said that the uh, uh, San Damiano cross, which is the cross that was uh, in the ad, is very significant to the Franciscan order, as it is believed God spoke to St. Francis through this cross, which is prominently displayed all over the Steubenville campus. So it's meaningful in particular to that university. They chose that rather sanitized uh, version of Christ on the cross uh, for that purpose. He said the cross is iconographic, meaning it's supposed to tell a story. It not only pictures Jesus there, but uh, there are images of others that surround, kind of frame the cross as well. Well, unlike other depictions of the cross, the San Damiano cross doesn't show Christ in agony uh, because they believe Christ crucified is the sign of his uh, glory and reign. While Jesus most likely would uh, have been naked, it's believed the garments he uh, he's wearing is uh, what most Jewish priests would wear when they offered sacrifices in the temple, and it symbolizes Jesus as the high priest, the sacrifice of the Father, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it is a particular uh, image of Christ on the cross. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, Crow went on to say, but rather his love for mankind. He could have descended from the cross at any moment, he wrote, which is a true statement. No, it was the love that kept him there, the love for us, love for you and me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his father in heaven. So a misunderstanding, the acts, uh, the actions, the decision of a single employee, not altogether clear what the situation or the answer to that question uh, might be. But Facebook has apologized for blocking the Catholic University's ad of Jesus on the cross and uh, did declare that that is not a policy that they have that would have um, rejected such an image. So there you have it. Well, we are continuing here at KPDQ to offer um, access to tuition discounts that are being offered by Christian schools in our community. And as you may have heard, and in fact, we're going to interview um, another of the local Christian schools here on tomorrow's program. Uh, As you may have noticed, there are some fine educators. There are some committed adults who are teaching young people in Christian schools throughout the Portland metro area. And it really is an honor to to take the opportunity to shine a light on them. Now, we we know that there are lots of uh, Christian uh, schools in our community. We've we've talked with and about a few of them, but there are tremendous opportunities for parents who are concerned about the quality of their sons and daughters' education to avail themselves of these tremendous opportunities. And at the KPDQ listener saving page, you can save up to 40% on Christian school uh, tuition, uh, some of the schools that that remain. uh, So I do want to encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity. Check it out and find out if among those uh, tuition discounts still available of up to 40%, uh, there's one that might to be a benefit to you and your family. Again, the website, listenersavings.com. Well, we are out of time today. Again, we're going to talk with Brian C. Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu. That's tomorrow. A world tour of the spread of Christianity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is our engineer, James Blend producer. And we want to thank you for listening and making the program part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRISE Show. 
and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.